Welcome to Oncology Nursing Update Prostate Cancer Edition. This is medical oncologist Dr. Neil Love. I met with Dr. Oliver Sarder to learn about the many new and exciting clinical research developments in the field. And to begin, he commented on new endocrine therapies in prostate cancer. Let's start with abiraterone because historically that came first, and then we'll migrate into enzalutamide. So first of all, the abiraterone just gave some stunning responses for people who had failed various therapies, including chemotherapies. And it was a real surprise because what this hormonal agent could do was something that we didn't expect it to do. It worked in disease that we were then calling, quote, hormone refractory disease, because that's the old term for these patients, this hormone refractory prostate cancer. And all of a sudden, we find out they're not hormone refractory after all. We can have these responses. And that put together, that information helped put together trials that demonstrated that people getting abiraterone could live longer even if they had received prior chemotherapy with docetaxel, which is standard chemotherapy. I guess also we've known for a long, long time that you give one form of endocrine therapy to a breast cancer patient, they have progressive disease on that hormone therapy, and then you give them a different one and they respond. But also was seen in breast cancers, they still have estrogen receptors there, even though the tumors become resistant. Do you see that with prostate cancer, that you still see the androgen receptors, even in these people who have disease progression, for example, on LHRH agonist? Yes. And in fact, yes, that was one of the original insights, because it turned out when you started measuring the androgen receptor, it was actually upregulated. There was like more of it. And so the question then arose, well, gosh, if you've got more of this receptor that's binding the testosterone then why is it hormone resistant? You know, that didn't really quite make sense. But the abiraterone in the initial studies was very insightful and then confirmed with the enzalutamide. The enzalutamide came in very shortly thereafter, and it gave results that were stunningly similar and with a little different side effect profile. I guess the bottom line, though, is the first thing you said about these drugs, which is you give it to people who are getting worse with metastatic prostate cancer on hormone, you know, androgen deprivation, and a lot of them get better and fairly dramatically. How long does it usually take to see a response? And what are some of the typical sort of clinical sequelae? And what do you see, you know, patients start out having pain, you know, are these agents often able to relieve pain and change quality of life? Absolutely, positively true. You know, the most dramatic thing and the first thing that you see is improvements in pain and quality of life and energy. I saw a patient yesterday in my clinic. He had been started on enzalutamide three weeks before. That's not very long. He had relatively severe and diffuse pain. And all of a sudden, three weeks later, this guy walks in. He's got a little bounce in his step. He says, my pain is doing better, I'm able to eat better, I'm enjoying myself, and it was obvious that even in a three-week period, he was having an improvement in his quality of life. Now, that's not always typical, you know, don't say that's a typical case, but that's the case I saw yesterday afternoon. So just out of curiosity, how old was this man and sort of what was his history? Yeah, so he was 77 years old. He had had an initial 
treatment with hormones after unfortunately presenting with metastatic disease, had a PSA about 70 or 80, had a bad Gleason scores, Gleason 9, multiple biopsies, and, you know, unfortunately just snuck up on him and he got diagnosed with metastatic disease. That happens. And he had bone mets? Oh, yeah, many bone mets. And any other cytometastasis? No, he was bone met only. And what was the first treatment he got? Well, he got regular old hormonal therapy like we've been doing for a long time. He got a Luprolide-type drug, and then he got bicalutamide. And that was his initial therapy. And what happened with that? Unfortunately, his duration of response was relatively brief. His initial response to hormonal therapy was only about eight months which is not as long as we would have hoped. Hmm. Just out of curiosity, how did he feel? First of all, when he presented, did he have symptoms from the metastatic disease? He did. He had pain and relatively diffuse pain. But when I saw him, he had actually already been started on abiraterone and prednisone. And so he came to me. I run a referral practice, often see these tough patients. And somebody else had been treating him, and then he heard about my practice. So he came on over. It had already been started on the abiraterone, and I said, good choice. Let's see how it goes. Hmm. Just going back, I'm kind of curious, how did he do on the LHRH agonist and bicalutamide? Did he have any symptoms from the treatment? He did. He had hot flashes, which are pretty common. If he were younger, he might have had some sexual or libido complaints, but 77, that's not something he raised up. And he did have some generalized fatigue and some kind of muscle weakness. He didn't have quite the get up and go that he had before. But he was having pain when he presented, and his pain was gone. Hmm. So he had a good clinical response in terms of pain. Was he on opioid analgesics initially? He was briefly, but the initial hormonal therapy took care of that, as it often does. Anyhow, so he gets the LHRH agonist, has progression. His doc starts him on abiraterone and corticosteroids, which probably would be a common choice in a community-based setting. Again, any problems with the abiraterone or with the corticosteroids? Neil, he did not have problems with the therapy in terms of side effects, but he had something really odd occur. His PSA skyrocketed. His PSA was on steroids, so to speak. And after the abiraterone, his PSA went from like 20 to 40 to 200 Hmm. in a very short interval of time. It was on abiraterone prednisone. And he came back and his pain was awful and his PSA was way up. Hmm. So almost like the disease was getting worse. Almost like the disease was getting worse. I looked at him. I looked at his numbers. I said, I don't know what's going on here, but something is going wrong. Wow, interesting. So you switched him then to enzalutamide? I did. And what happened? It was really interesting. His PSA dropped about 100 points in three weeks. And that's where I just saw the guy. I just saw him yesterday. He's back. His PSA has dropped dramatically, he's better, his pain is diminished, and the guy's clinically better in addition to having better parameters on his tumor markers. Sounds like a pretty scary experience for him. It was really scary. It was scary for me, too, because really nice guy. You know, I'm trying to do my best for him, of course. And, you know, we generally have a 
pretty fair amount of confidence in the abiraterone. The abiraterone prednisone is a good therapy, and I use it a good bit. And in this case, it was just going the wrong way. So I'm curious what the side effect and toxicity issues are with these two new drugs and what you say to patients about to begin them. And maybe we can go back to the abiraterone in terms of what you see, but also why corticosteroids are used with abiraterone, but they're not used for enzalutamide. Sure. So I have to go back to a little bit of kind of basic biology. If you look at how abiraterone works, I mentioned that it cuts off the synthesis of testosterone. And that, of course, is true. But it inhibits two enzymes. It inhibits an enzyme called 17-alpha-hydroxylase, another one called 1720-ketoase. And if it just inhibited the ketoase, it wouldn't be that much of an issue. But it inhibits this other enzyme, and that enzyme, 17-alpha-hydroxylase, turns out to be involved with the glucocorticoid synthesis pathway. That seems like cortisol. Well, you got to have cortisol. You don't have cortisol, you don't live. And the cortisol going down triggers in the pituitary a feedback mechanism where the hormone we call ACTH, or adrenocorticotropic hormone from the pituitary, that one starts going up. And what happens is you end up kind of maintaining a little better cortisol, but now you're going to be overproducing the third aspect of the adrenal steroids in this case, and that is the mineralocorticoids. These are things like aldosterone and its precursors. So what happens is if you don't give a glucocorticoid such as prednisone or dexamethasone along with abiraterone, you end up with this mineralocorticoid excess syndrome. And this can be associated with high blood pressure. It can be associated with low potassium. It can be associated with fluid retention. And those are problematic issues. When you give a little prednisone, you can cut down on those problems. So I'm kind of curious, you know, it's not that much corticosteroids to give to people. And yet there are a lot of situations where men with metastatic disease get corticosteroids, including when they receive chemotherapy. And there has been data out there. I saw a paper that was written about this, about sort of how this kind of plays out in terms of toxicity, that sometimes patients actually, even though they're lower dose, they get them for so long, they run into problems. Do you see problems and what kinds of problems? Yes. The corticosteroids are very much of a double-edged sword. When you initially use them, often patients feel a little bit better, and there actually is data to suggest that they may have some palliative benefits as well as some anti-tumor benefits, not large but detectable. And the early effects of steroids are not problematic. It's the later effects of steroids that are problematic. So why are they bad? Well, there are several things involved with glucose metabolism that could be very problematic. Because people who are on steroids such as prednisone are more prone to diabetes. And if they already have diabetes, their blood sugar is more likely to be hard to control. You end up with very thin skin. And that thin skin is not a problem perhaps for younger men, but for older men, it can start to cause skin breakdown and bruising and can even lead to infection if you have problematic issues that are unattended to. You can end up with what we call a steroid myopathy down in the legs. And one of the problems with older men on androgen deprivation is they lose muscle mass, and that's going to be true for any of the therapies we're using. And then if you add prednisone on top of the androgen deprivation, they end up 
particularly with lower extremity weakness. They're trying to get out of a chair. They can't get out of a chair. They've got to use their hands to press themselves up. They're trying to get off the toilet, and they can't get themselves off the toilet. And this is a proximal myopathy, and it can be exacerbated with the use of steroids. So the steroid myopathy, the thin skin, the difficulties in glucose control, and very occasionally we run into, even at low doses, people who just feel kind of flat and don't feel right on the steroids. So their longer-term effects, we really... Oh, and then osteopenia and osteoporosis as well. You keep them on steroids for a long time, then they're more prone to have problems with osteopenia and osteoporosis, which, in fact, the engine deprivation exacerbates too. So there are a variety of reasons, you know, in the perfect world, we wouldn't use a lot of steroids, but the world's not perfect. So any other side effects or complications that are seen with abiraterone? Yeah, so let me talk about things clinically. I talked about the leg swelling. I talked about the low potassium. I talked about the high blood pressure. There are a few patients that can have trouble with their liver, and we need to monitor the liver functions carefully. And there is a little bit of excess in atrial fibrillation. Maybe it's due to the extra fluid accumulation or high blood pressure. We're not sure. But a little bit of atrial fib, the liver function test, and then the three things I mentioned earlier. And then in terms of enzalutamide, first of all, why is it that you don't need the corticosteroids and what is seen in terms of side effects and complications? Okay, so you do not have with the enzalutamide any alteration in androgen synthesis. What it does is it binds to the androgen receptor and it blocks testosterone and other potent androgens such as dihydrotestosterone for blocking. And it blocks it much better than any of our older hormones do. So it doesn't interfere with the synthesis. So some of the problems that you might get with this androgen synthesis inhibitors that I mentioned like low potassium high blood pressure are not problems with this agent. The issue that got people a little bit frightened is there's In the phase one trial, as they got into the higher doses with enzalutamide, they had a couple of patients with seizures. And that led to them lowering the dose and led to the concern that during the phase three trial that seizures could be a problem. Well, it turned out it was less than 1%, but there were several seizures that probably could have been explained by other factors in the patients being treated with enzalutamide. But nevertheless, in the placebo group, they didn't see them. So there was an imbalance in the seizure rate, very small, less than 1%. I think, don't quote me on this, but I think it was around seven patients who actually had the seizures, and that was less than 1%. But in the placebo group, there was zero. So in the label, there's this caution about giving enzalutamide to people with seizures. Now, I don't really worry about it that much. I mean, to be honest with you, I just ask people, well, do you have a seizure history? And if they do, then, of course, that gets me very concerned. But if they don't, I don't like to do CAT scans or anything to rule out a head mat because generally brain mats are pretty rare in prostate cancer. So I do ask about seizures, but I don't get obsessed with it. Any other situations where you might want to think twice about it? I've heard people say in alcoholics, even if they don't have seizures or people with any kind of CNS history, prior strokes, et cetera? Well, you know, I think there's a little bit of concern there, particularly on the alcoholism. I mean, alcoholism makes me very nervous because 
These guys are falling down. They're hitting their heads. You know, they are seizure prone. But if they've got really bad prostate cancer, the best I can do for them is try to control their prostate cancer. And that's my first priority. I mean, I tell them to cut down on their drinking, and I try to treat them as normal as I possibly can, assuming they're just not down and out drunks. Now, if they're down and out drunks, that gets to be a separate story. So you talk about two different you know, types of endocrine treatment. What do we know about responses to the second one after the patient's been on the first one? Here you have a situation where the patient got worse on one of them and then got better on the other. How often do you see that? Or do you see people responding to the first one and responding to the second one, for example? You know, I love your question, Neil. I'm actually working on a paper to help review this topic because it's such an important topic. And what I can say is that we have a couple of papers that have come out now that are giving us some insights. And I'll share those insights with you, but I'm going to tell you that we don't have any prospective trials. And what we're dealing with is little retrospective studies that may or may not hold up in the long term. So let me start with that caveat. It appears as though if you give the enzalutamide first, that the response rate to abiraterone second is very, very low, extremely low. If you use the abiraterone first and then go to enzalutamide, it appears as though that there are some patients who are refractory to abiraterone that can respond to enzalutamide, and then there are a few patients who had a good response to abiraterone that may also respond to enzalutamide. Now, we don't know a lot about the duration of these effects. You know, we're talking about response rates. But let's put it this way. If you look, and I can quote this paper, so I will, there's a paper from Canada that looked at enzalutamide first and then abiraterone. Now, abiraterone, in the general context of where we're talking about, will give declines at PSA about 80% of the time. If you get enzalutamide first, you have no response about 80% of the time with abiraterone. In other words, you take a drug that's inducing 80% responses, and now you have 80% resistance. That's what we call cross-resistance. It's big, it's important, and we're not talking about enough yet. So I want to ask you to finish out here to talk about another agent, actually the most recently approved agent in prostate cancer, radium-223 or alpha-radin, and this is a drug that you've been very involved with in terms of doing the clinical research on. What exactly is radium-223, and how is it being used today in prostate cancer? Well, you know, I do like history a little bit, so this time we have to go back to Madame Curie, and it's really pretty cool because she discovered radium really well over 100 years ago and started using it as an anti-cancer therapy way back then by putting it into tumors. Not her, but physicians did, and there were radium institutes that sprung up around Europe to take advantage of this therapy. Well, it took a long time to figure out that if you inject radium, that it goes into the bone. And that if you can inject radium that goes to bone, maybe you can use it therapeutically as well. So this idea got developed from a group in Norway that did the seminal work, and lo and behold, they demonstrated some interesting and positive results. It ended up leading to a phase three trial. And that phase three trial was just 
published this year in July, New England Journal. I happened to be the senior author on that paper. And the FDA gave the approval in May based on the data and how it demonstrated that you could get a longer survival and with pretty minimal side effects. And so that was a really interesting phenomenon. And as it turned out, it really represents a whole new class of therapy. It's a radiopharmaceutical. It's an alpha emitter, which is a brand new class. It's two protons, two neutrons. I don't want to go into the details. But the bottom line is it's a whole new class of treatment for bone lesions in the prostate cancer patient. So really cool stuff. What has been seen in terms of side effects and toxicity in the past with other sort of similar agents, we've seen some myelosuppression that's been concerned. What's seen with this agent? The main thing that you see is not much. But what you can see, and maybe around 6 to 7% of people, is some thrombocytopenia that develops. Typically a little bit later, we're actually doing a little more research to characterize these patients. And you see a tiny, tiny amount of neutropenia. But when I say tiny, I mean literally about 1% to 2% that is significant. So there's a little bit of mild suppression, but in generally it's very well tolerated. And it's something that has been surprising. And it gets back to the basic physics of this molecule. It's an alpha particle, which I mentioned, has a very short track length when it gets to its target, which is in bone. And the bottom line is it just doesn't radiate much marrow. And who actually administers this treatment? How often is it done? And what's done, if anything, in terms of sort of radioactive protection? The interesting thing is the radioactive protection consists of flushing the toilet twice. It's very different from the beta emitters or the gamma emitters that you may be more familiar with. So this alpha particle has such a short track length, you really don't need to use any lead-lined rooms. We just it gets injected in a regular old exam room and the patient just goes home and we tell them to flush the toilet twice and if they get soiled underwear or something, that, that needs to be washed up pretty carefully. That being said, it can only be administered by somebody licensed to administer radiopharmaceuticals. And in the world that I live in, that means either nuclear medicine or radiation oncology. And what are the situations where the drug is utilized, and would it be a consideration in this patient that you were describing who is having such a good response to enzalutamide? Yeah, great question. And I'm going to tell you that not only did I consider this patient for radium, I referred him for radium. And there's a little more to the story because there was another odd piece that developed. While this patient was having his increasing pain and having this dramatic rise in his PSA, and we terminated the abiraterone after about 10 weeks or so, his platelet count was plummeting. And so his platelet count went from like 120,000 and it went all the way down to like 50,000. And I didn't fully understand what it was, but I did note that it's nucleated red blood cells, which is a marker of what we call a myelothistic marrow, started increasing dramatically. And I think the tumor in this guy's bone marrow was expanding dramatically, and it knocked his platelets down so far 
that I didn't feel safe using radium right now. So the bottom line is I referred him for radium, but he didn't get it because his platelets were too low. And I still have radium on the agenda for him, but I got to wait for his platelets to come up first. Wow, that is really fascinating. You mentioned this myelothistic picture where you see you know, so much tumor in the bone or bone marrow that they actually get myelosuppression or you know, low counts. And what's going on with this platelet count now that he's on the enzalutamide? Well, I'm only three weeks in. Oh, right. So you don't yeah. even know yet. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, I actually drew a CBC and the platelets are still low. But what I told him was, I think your platelets are going to go up. I think this was due to your dramatic disease progression, which I still have a little trouble understanding. But in the context of this patient, I'm going to follow it very closely, and I'm going to bring in the radium when I think it's safe to do so. Interesting. So typically, when do you think about using radium, and how long does it take to receive it? So the actual injection is very, very brief. The injection occurs over you know less than five minutes, and just an intravenous injection. You asked me earlier, and I didn't respond, like, how often do you give it and that sort of thing? We give it IV every four weeks with this little five-minute infusion. And the total number of doses that have been tested so far is six. So in the randomized clinical trial and in the FDA, six doses is what was prescribed. It turns out that it takes a little bit of time to be able to get it because you have to order the drug, and then they have to ship it in. That's been taking probably around 10 days, 10 to 14 days in my experience. And I think we have more experience than anybody in North America on this one. So you have to order the drug and then get the patient to be able to come back when the drug is delivered. Interesting. And you mentioned you have a lot of experience. There are a lot of oncologists and clinics that haven't even used the drug yet. It hasn't been approved that long what do you see clinically? Do you see patients having symptomatic improvement, for example, bone pain or improvement? Yes, you do. You know, in the clinical trial, that was not well annotated. But what I can say is that I have seen patients get better. There may be a little bit of flare in the pain early on in like the first week or so. Maybe that's 10 or 15% of patients. But Typically, you're ending up with improvement in quality of life, and that's documented. We did a poster at ESMO on that, European Society of Medical Oncology. And you end up with decreases in pain, and we have some parameters on that. But the actual FDA approval doesn't mention a lot about the palliative effects because it wasn't the focus of the study. We were very focused on survival as the primary endpoint. Now, in terms of the way it works and the fact that it's, you know, quote, calcium mimetic, so similar to calcium going into the bone, you wouldn't think it would have any benefit outside of the bone. Is it just for patients who only have bone metastases? Or, for example, if you have somebody who has mainly bone metastases, would you consider using it? Yeah, great question. And very important point to clarify. So within the context of the clinical trial, within the context of the FDA approval, first of all, you have to have bony metastatic disease because that's the target. This thing goes to bone, it doesn't go elsewhere. In the clinical trial, they did not want you to have lymph nodes bigger than three centimeters around and did not want you to have visceral disease. And visceral disease is typically for us, it's liver disease because the radium doesn't go to lymph nodes and it doesn't go to the liver. But in my practice, I don't think about bone only disease. I don't think that's fair. 
I think about bone predominant disease. I mean, if you have a guy with a big liver mass, you know, I'm probably not thinking radium. But if I have a guy with, you know, scattered retroperitoneal lymphadenopathy and a bunch of bone lesions, he's bone predominant. And I'm thinking radium for him. Now, what about using radium-223 at the same time that you're using other agents? It sounds like you were ready to consider giving it to him with abiraterone or enzalutamide. What do we know about combining it with hormones? Can it be combined with chemo? Can it be combined with the immunotherapy, cipulusal T, for example? Yeah, great question. Number one, in the Alcimca trial, which was the phase three trial that led to the FDA approval, Everybody got treated according to the best standard of care. And there were very few restrictions. You could give any hormone you wanted, and you could give dexamethasone, nalutamide, flutamide, bicalutamide, DES, ketoconazole, any of those things you could give. You could not give chemo, you could not give hemibody radiation, and you could not give any experimental agent. Well, at the time of the trial, the enzalutamide and abiraterone were experimental. And they were not included formally within the trial. What I can tell you is that today I'm using radium along with best standard of care on the same guidelines. I'm not giving it with chemo. I'm not using it with hemibody radiation, but I don't do that anyway. And I'm not using it with an experimental agent. But for the insulutamide and abiraterone, I think these are very reasonable combinations. And my personal experience so far is very positive. What about... We were talking before about bisphosphonates and denosumab. Now, when this man had progression on the androgen deprivation, was he started on either one of those? Yes, he was on denosumab, and I'm continuing it. And again, what about the issue of using either a bisphosphonate or denosumab at the same time as radium-223? With the bisphosphonate, such as zoledronic acid, absolutely no problems. And we have good clinical data to show you on that. On the denosumab, we don't actually have the experience because of the regulatory approvals made an experimental agent during the Alcimcon trial. I use the denosumab in combination with radium. I have no concerns. What about, you know, when you think about it, this is targeting bone, bone with tumor. We see that kind of scenario with bone predominant or bone exclusive disease in other solid tumors. You see that in breast cancer, you see it in renal cell cancer. What about radium-223 in these other tumors? Well, the studies are underway. I'm personally optimistic that if you choose your patient correctly, that radium is going to have a positive effect. There's nothing in my mind that makes prostate cancer special in its relationship to radium, other than the fact that prostate cancer has to be an extraordinarily bone-tropic disease. So you get other diseases that are bone-tropic, particularly if they have a significant blastic component I think the radium could be good there as well. Now, you know, our experience with radium is pretty recent, but what about radium retreatment? You mentioned that normally people get it for about six cycles once a month. You know, hopefully they're going to, for example, your man, hopefully he'll get it once his platelets come back up. He'll continue to have a good response. Hopefully it'll be a little bit longer because of having this in there. Maybe he'll go on to another treatment. He's never gotten, you know, docetaxel, for example. You know, who knows what's going to be going on in prostate cancer three or four years from now. You know, hopefully he'll be alive. But what about using radium-223 again? 
I think we need clinical trials in order to really assess the safety. Right now, we don't really have data, but not to worry. There's a clinical trial starting up. We'll have it at our institution about radium retreatment. And it's a great question. We just don't have any data on it right now. And what about external beam radiation therapy in a patient who's getting radium-223? For example, your man, has he? you mentioned he had pain. Has he had any external radiation? He's not had any external radiation, and the reason that I didn't do it, his pain was very diffuse. You know, generally I ask a patient, I said, can you point to where your pain is? And if the patient can do that, Obviously, you've got a localized problem, and you can use external beam pretty effectively there. This guy had pain all over. He had pain in his shoulders, he had in his head, and his hips, and his legs. This guy had pain everywhere. And I'm just kind of curious, when he came back, you said it was a couple days ago? Yesterday. Yesterday. Yeah. You said he was better. Was he pain-free? Did you see a difference in his performance status? What was his state of mind also? Well, First of all, and this sounds a little interesting, he was puzzled. He said, I feel better. And I said, well, you do? I said, well, tell me how. And he said, well, my pain is much improved. Now, he's still taking a little bit of narcotics, but not like he was. He's had very substantial improvement in pain. And he said, and I'm getting around more. You know, before I was just practically in the chair, and now I'm getting up and I'm moving around. So his performance status is better. I didn't need to assess that. He told me that. And his appetite was better. And he said, and I'm eating better. And so this guy in a very short period of time is better across the board in addition to his biochemical markers. Interesting. What's his support system? Does he have a spouse? And what's his state of mind in terms of dealing with this whole situation? Well, I tell you, it's tough because his spouse is sick. And he is actually the primary caregiver for his wife. Wow. And No, it's a tough, tough, tough situation. He has a really good friend who's a neighbor of his who's coming with him to clinic and helping to give him support. His wife has never come to clinic. I don't think she's capable. And we actually have had a lot of discussions on how to do this. He has a son that lives down in Florida, And we're probably going to end up transferring his care to a place down in Florida. But I said, you know, let's try to get things optimized here. And if we can continue to get you better, we got a little breathing room. So we just don't have to be moving around in a panic. And he was extremely relieved to see that his numbers were getting better. And that I confirmed to him, yes, you really are getting better. He was like I said, he was kind of puzzled when he came in. He said, I'm, I think I'm getting better. And it was sort of like a disbelief in his mind. Hmm. Fascinating. What do you see in his future? Do you think that, I mean, he's 77 years old. Do you think that if you wanted to or it was indicated you could give him chemotherapy? Well, I couldn't give him chemotherapy when he came in because his performance status was not good enough. He really was honestly, kind of a borderline ECOG 2-3. I mean, this is a sick man with a lot of pain whose activity is sitting in a chair, okay? I like people to have a better performance status than that when I give chemo. So the combination of the enzalutamide and radium is really where I wanted to go with him, and I feel real good about that combination, and that's my goal number one. Now, if we can 
get him improved and get a performance status better, then I think the chemotherapy question can potentially be present in the future. I didn't want to give it right now, but I'm not ruling it out later. Is there an age where you just sort of pull back from chemotherapy or, you know, will you consider it, you know, you obviously are considering him, you know, 85, 90 year old? You know, it's hard to draw hard age limits. And I think as soon as we do, we may be doing a disservice. You know, we have this chronologic age and then we have this biologic age. You know, I had an 89 year old not so long ago and I treated him with docetaxel and he's 89 years old. Now, he's not a typical 89 years old. This guy is up and about, and he's really, you know, got a great performance status. Um, you know, so age is not the primary factor. To me, it's more about performance status and, if you will, biologic age. 